I feel like I've been taking out the garbage my entire life. (laughs) See, I'm a middle child, and everyone knows middle children get stuck with all the dirty jobs. Any middle children testify to that? (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah, it was always like, Mark, the garbage has got to go out. Take the garbage from the kitchen to the garage every day. Take the garage, or take the garage, take the garbage out from the garage to the curb once a week, week in and week out. The garbage has got to go out. That's what has to happen to garbage. And it it didn't change when I became an adult. It still had to take the garbage out every single week. Well, I remember one time when my wife and I were just married, Gretchen and I, and we were a part of a very small church, and they could not afford to pay us too much. And so we were always looking to cut our monthly expenses wherever we could. And so I found a less expensive garbage service, which is a good thing, except for the fact that I didn't realize that between my old garbage service and my new garbage service, there was going to be a lapse of like two to three weeks, right? And you know, this was the middle of the summertime. So you know what happens when garbage gets kept in a garage that gets really hot during the summer? Not good things for sure. Not good. And the garbage just began, as you can imagine, to stink so awful bad. It's just putrid. And things began to grow in my garbage, right? And, and my garbage began to move on its own. <laughs> and garbage is not supposed to move on its own. And that was a reminder to me that a regular part, an important part of life is getting rid of the garbage, right? That's an important part of life. Got to get rid of the garbage. And it's not enough to just get it to the garage. It's got to leave the property. It can't stay around. Garbage has got to be gotten rid of. And I wonder, as I think about our lives, are there things in your life, in my life, that have, like garbage, hung around for far too long? Unhealthy things that can begin to grow the wrong kind of the wrong kind of attitudes and actions in our lives. And today we're going to take the next step in our Philippians series, and we're going to focus on chapter 3, where Paul's going to challenge us about some unhealthy things that can begin to grow if we're not careful. Before I go any further, I want to introduce myself. My name is Mark Nelson. I'm the campus pastor for our online campus, and I do want to say a quick shout out to all of you joining us from home, wherever you might be, whether that's here in Rochester, or somewhere else in the world entirely, as well as uh, hello to all of you joining us at our in-person campuses. It's good to have each of you here. And uh, if you've been with us for our Philippian series, you know that in the first couple of weeks, we heard from our Webster campus pastor, Nate Miller, who challenged us in week one about the difference between joy and happiness. And then last week, we were challenged about having a servant's heart, that a key to our joy is having a heart like Christ's, a servant's heart. And today, we're going to take the next step. We're going to look at chapter 3, where Paul is going to shift his attention onto some things that can destroy our joy if we're not careful. And so let's look together at verse 1 of chapter 3, where Paul writes, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. There it is. It's a command. It's an instruction from Paul. We need to choose to do it. Whatever the circumstance we're in, we can choose to rejoice in the Lord. Week one, we learned about that, didn't we? We learned that joy is a choice we can make. So we need to rejoice in God. And he says, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Well, why is it a safeguard for us? Well, because throughout the rest of this chapter, Paul is going to warn us that if we fail to rejoice in the Lord, then there are some counterfeit joys that can kind of sneak in the back door. 
and seek to steal away our true joy. And Paul is not going to pull any punches in this chapter. He's using some very strong language. He's not messing around. He says in verse 2, watch out for those dogs. Now he's using the term dogs, not literally, of course, but metaphorically of a group of people. And we might use the term dog metaphorically today, like, what's up, dog, right? Like, we might, like, use that term metaphorically, but it's important to know there's a difference between our culture and the ancient Middle Eastern culture. Our, in our culture, we highly regard our canines, right? We love our dogs. But in ancient Middle Eastern culture, dogs were considered to be the lowliest of creatures. And so this is a real insult from Paul. Watch out for those dogs, he says, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. What's he talking about there? Well, he's saying that this group of people is insisting that the outward sign that God gave Old Testament Israel, the covenant sign of circumcision, that that's actually still required today to please God. But Paul says, no, no, verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit. In other words, it's no longer about an outward sign, but an inward reality, that we have the Spirit of God within us. And he describes us as we who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And this phrase, in the flesh, it's not talking about our physical bodies. It's talking about the sinful tendencies that exist within our physical bodies, the sin nature, you could call it. Paul here is specifically referring to the tendency that we all have to rely on our own accomplishments and abilities in order to have confidence before God. But Paul's warning us, don't let that happen. That's not where confidence uh, comes from before God. That's not where our joy in life comes from. And the deal he knows, Paul knows that we're always wanting to run back to a system of religious ceremonies and human abilities. But that's not where true joy is found, and that's not, not where confidence before God is found. And These uh, impulses that Paul is going to point out that can too often be a part of our lives, they can, like garbage, hang around for far too long, and they can cause our lives to begin to stink a little bit. They can cause the, the wrong things to grow, and they can make our lives rot and smell and unattractive and unjoyful. And so today, four impulses that destroy joy. That's where we want to go today. Four impulses that destroy joy. And truly, I can't think of a better passage of Scripture to preach on Father's Day than Philippians chapter 3. And by the way, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Happy Father's Day, Dad, if you're watching. Um, But man, as a dad, as a husband, as a father, as a man, I know um, just how much I struggle personally with each of the impulses that we're going to be challenged by today. And as I've counseled men through the years, I found reoccurring themes that seem to resurface uh, in these ways. But I think there are implications here for all followers of Jesus as we look at these four impulses. So Paul wrote, we are those who put no confidence in the flesh. And then verse 4, though he says, I myself have reasons for such confidence. And then in verses verses 4 to 6, Paul lists his list of accomplishments, and it's a pretty impressive list. It's as if Paul is saying, hey, if joy in life was found in our accomplishments, I'd have loads, but that's not where it's found. And so we then find the first impulse that I think Paul highlights for us. The first impulse that can destroy our joy, I'm going to say, is the pressure, the pressure to prove ourselves, the pressure to prove it. 
Um, I was out in front of my house the other day trimming my hedges, and I had my AirPods in, and I was listening to a podcast, and my neighbor from a couple houses down came up behind me and kind of scared me. I didn't know he was there, and he said, hey, I was just out for a run. Thought I'd say hi. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm training to run a 50-mile race, and I was like, man, I don't know if I could run 15 miles, and he's like, no, not 15, 50, five, zero. I'm going to run 50 miles, and I'm like, you're going to do what? Like, why would you run? I don't even like to drive 50 miles. You're going to run 50 miles? Like, why would you? Oh, they're probably going to give you like a really big cash prize at the end if you win. And he's like, no, actually, they don't pay us anything. We actually have to pay them to let them abuse us in this way. I'm like, well, then what would motivate you to want to run 50 miles? And he said, I just want to prove that I can. Well, let me save you a lot of work. You can't. Like, <laughs> let me just tell you that right now. Like, there are some things human beings just can't do. Like, I don't know, fly or touch the sun or run 50 miles. Like, that's incredible, right? But don't we love, like, just proving that we can do stuff, right? We love achievements. And you know what? There's actually nothing wrong with that. Achievements are great. We should strive for achievements. But here's, I think, a subtle trap that we can fall into if we're not careful. Because we love to achieve, if we aren't careful, we can fall into the trap of trusting in our achievements to provide us with a sense of significance that only God can provide in our lives. We can trust in our achievements to, to cause us to earn favor in the eyes of others or even of God if we're not careful. But Paul's making it clear. The secret to our joy has nothing to do with achievements, but instead what Christ achieved on our behalf. Because he shifts the focus in verses 7 to 11, and it's really the focal point of the chapter. It's this beautiful expression from Paul about where his joy was found. Check it out, verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, that whole list I just went through, uh, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, rubbish, as my New England mother-in-law likes to call it. <laughs> uh, I consider them, the original word here is dung, human excrement, worse than nothing. Like, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or my achievements, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, Paul says. I want to know Christ. And we've been thinking all through this letter about where, where true joy comes from. And here we find a central expression of where it's found. It's this, that knowing Christ is the center of true joy. Knowing Christ is the center of true joy. Everything else is a cheap substitute. And you might say, well, what does it mean to know Christ? Well, if we look at Paul's own words right here in this letter, Paul tells us that, that it starts with having the righteousness that comes from God by faith in Christ. And then experiencing the joy of deepening that relationship with Christ over time. Which results in us becoming more Christ-like. And then you might say, well, wait a minute. Are you saying that in, unless I know Christ, I can't have real joy? Actually, yes. That's, that's actually what I think God is telling us here. That there is a fullness of joy that can only be found in, in having been made right in the eyes of our eternal Father. 
through faith in Christ. And just as a young child can only have the sense that everything's okay, that there's peace, that there's a fullness of joy in their life when everything is right with mommy, when everything is right with daddy, just like that, we're that same way with our eternal father that unless and until we know that we've been made right with our heavenly father, we can't have the true fullness of joy. And on this Father's Day, I would ask you, do you know for sure that you've been made right with your heavenly Father? You can know that. Through faith in Christ, you can be made right with your eternal Father. And we would love to help you take that step of faith in Christ today. And if we can help you with that in any way, if you'd like to express interest in that, you can go to iwant.info on any device. It would be our joy to help you know what it means to come to faith in Christ but it's not just about coming to know Christ, but about, but about continuing to know Christ more deeply over time. And our problem is that we so often settle for something far less. In this section, Paul wants us to know that joy isn't found in achievements, but in knowing Christ. It's not found in achievements. And how many fathers need to hear that today? How many men in our culture are convinced that if I, if I just prove myself at the gym or at the office, or by delivering a really good sermon, right? If I just prove myself in some way, then I can finally know what it means to have joy. In fact, according to research, most men feel like a failure. Researchers asked 1,500 men about their goals and aspirations. More than half think they're underachieving, with 35% saying they're way behind on their career goals. Relevant Magazine did a survey. They, they found that 71% of men say they're conscious about providing for their families often or most of the time. And so because we feel this, this weight on our shoulders, this pressure to prove it, it can cause us to settle for a subtle trade-off. We can be tempted to trade in the true joy found only in a relationship with God for something a lot cheaper, something a lot quicker, for the affirmation that we feel through temporary achievements. And maybe there's no better example of how achievements fail to provide lasting joy than swimmer Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps, as you probably know, the most decorated Olympic athlete of all time, when he was right in the midst of his incomparative success, he reflected or he recalled how he felt. He said, I was in the lowest place I've ever been. Honestly, I sort of, at one point, I just, I felt like I didn't want to see another day. Wow. And to be clear here, Paul is not saying that achievements are bad. No, I think he would have loved watching Michael Phelps' prowess in the pool, right? I think, like, if my neighbor wants to run 50 miles, man, I'm going to be right there on the couch cheering him on. You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing wrong with achievements. The problem is we, we misunderstand their value. We place ultimate value in achievements, and I think when we do that, we end up being sorely disappointed. The second impulse that I think we can see in this set of verses is found in verse 12 through 14, where we read, not that I, Paul writes, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So once we've come to a place where we've established that our joy is not in our achievements, but in our relationship with God, then we can actually get after it in all the ways that really count. Paul recognized that even though it isn't about our achievements, it's not about earning favor with God, there is still a very necessary spiritual intensity 
that must exist in the life of a Christ follower, rooted not in a need to prove ourselves, but instead rooted in a passionate desire to know Christ more fully. Here's the sad irony, though, that I think we see. I know I see it in my own life. As much as we attempt to prove ourselves out in public, it doesn't often translate to the areas of our life that matter most. It doesn't often translate back home. It doesn't often translate in my private life to my spiritual pursuit of God. And so the second impulse that I think can destroy our joy is the propensity to be passive. The propensity, the tendency we have to be more unintentional than we ought to be where it matters most. When I was uh, first married and back when our children were young, I would notice my wife Gretchen leading out in some really amazing ways as a mom. And it was awesome, actually, you know, around the dinner table or maybe at special moments around holidays. And uh, I also recognize at the same time, like, there's a, a solemn responsibility that God has tasked me with as a husband and father to be a spiritual leader in our home. And so as I'd see Gretchen leading out in these ways, I began to feel like, man, I'm kind of jealous. Like, I want to lead out like that, or that should be me. And I almost felt like God would be turning my words against me, like saying to me, like, right? Like, that should be you. Why aren't you leading in those ways? And it began to convict me that maybe I shouldn't be bothered that my wife was leading out. Maybe I should recognize instead that, first of all, that's awesome. And secondly, like, what am I doing? I'm failing to do my part as a father and as a husband. And so that was, that was helpful for me to be challenged in those ways. And I love the imagery that Paul uses here of athletics or of racing, like the striving toward, we strain toward. It's like a runner at a finish line, a runner at a finish line, striving to win the race. Similarly, the writer of Hebrews states in Hebrews 12 verse 1, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. This word race that he uses in Hebrews is the, the Greek word agon, from which we get the English word agony. In other words, this, huh, the characteristic of the way that we pursue the most important things in life, the way that we pursue our relationship with God, the way we pursue being an influence in our home, it ought to be able to be described as agonizing effort. But I wonder, is the effort that you're putting in and that I'm putting in at the most important things, could it be described as agonizing too often, I feel it's far less. I see it all the time at the gym, right? I go to the gym and I see someone on the bench lifting weights and they're agonizing. I mean, truly agonizing, like to the point of pain, to the point of exhaustion and beyond. They're willing to lift the weight. They're giving it everything they've got to lift that weight. And there's a spotter over them saying, come on, give me one more, just one more. You can do it. Push it. And there's an aggressiveness and a determination that's evident there. And I wonder, do I have that in the things that really matter in life? Do I bring that in my, into my home? Do I bring that into my pursuit of Christ? So often I'm so puny and pathetic in comparison. It's like, <laughs> I just can't do another rep of Bible study. It's just too hard. I just, I don't know if I can get up off the couch and serve my family. It's too hard. I don't know if I can speak kind words. It's just too, too much weight. And I'm so often puny and pathetic, but what if we were to take the same kind of intensity we see at the gym or at the office and translate it to our home life, to our spiritual life? I think we're so prone to seek escape from our responsibilities, but Paul wants us to understand that joy isn't found in escaping, but knowing Christ. That's where joy is found, not in escaping, and I wonder if you're looking for an escape today to provide you with ultimate joy. Do you think that maybe retreating to the man cave on a regular basis will do it? Hmm. Maybe diving into a hobby, losing yourself in that hobby, or retreating into a fantasy world controlled only by your Xbox controller. 
right? Or yours could look very noble. Maybe it's escape through overworking yourself or escape through keeping the perfectly manicured lawn. Or ladies, maybe for you it's escape to the she shed, right? Or out to TJ Maxx again or into that book series that you're just lost in or the TV series that you're binge watching. Look, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of these things. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with enjoying appropriate rest and relaxation. That's actually important. We need to do that, but watch for the subtle trade-off because there's nothing wrong with enjoying those things, but if you're looking to an escape to provide you with an ultimate sense of joy, then you're looking in the wrong place. I think we might have read right past the third issue that often destroys our joy there in verse 13 where Paul wrote, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Forgetting what is behind. I think the third impulse that often threatens to destroy our joy is the pull of the past. The pull of the past. Paul had such a long list of reasons related to his past for why he just couldn't be an effective Christian leader. I mean, he was dealing with the embarrassment of realizing that he knew the Old Testament law so well only to miss the very Messiah of which it spoke. And the shame that he carried of, about his actions against the followers of Jesus, persecuting them even to the point of death. And the, the, the shame and the struggle of his own very real sin struggle that he outlined in Romans chapter 7, where he said he constantly finds himself doing the very things he doesn't want to do. Paul knew just how much the pull of the past could threaten to destroy his joy. And I wonder today, how many of us use our past as an excuse to not walk in wisdom? In the present, author Mark Chansky, thinking about similar themes, writes of three victimization mindsets that we can fall into, three labels we can give ourselves. The first he calls the genetic victim, where he says we blame our DNA. Hey, you don't understand. <laughs> I'm Irish. How can I not have a hot temper, someone might say. Or, I, I mean, yes, I'm an alcoholic, but both my mom and dad were. How can I not be? It was inherited. I can't overcome it. And we might say it's not a sin, it's a sickness. And we, we might conclude those kinds of things and we might become the, the genetic victim. Or we might be the emotional victim where we say, you don't understand the way I was brought up. If you knew the home I was from, you'd understand. Or, you know, there's an abuse that I experienced and I don't know how you can expect me to obey God in this area because I'll never get past that. Or there's a trauma somewhere along the line. And look, please, understand, I am not unsympathetic to the very real pain very real hurt so many people have had to endure by certain abuses and certain traumas. But I do think it's important that um, we, we recognize that, that in the name of past hurts, we can excuse ourselves from developing the very habits that would lead us past those hurts. And we can't allow that to happen and become the emotional victim. Number three, he says there's a cir circumstantial victim. And this one's more about the very recent past like just this past week or yesterday at the office, hey, you don't, you don't understand how my boss treats us. Like, you'd get it if you, you saw that. Or you don't know what it's like to live with my spouse, right? We use all these circumstantial reasons for why we just can't please God with our choices. And the problem with the victim mindset is that victims can't be victors. And staying enslaved to the past, it doesn't allow us to break free for what's possible in the present and we can convince ourselves that there's some kind of value, satisfaction, or even joy found in relishing the hurts of the past, or that they serve as a veiled excuse for why we just can't please God today. But Paul warns us. He wants us to know that joy isn't found in replaying yesterday, 
but in knowing Christ. Hmm. In fact, joy isn't found, if you think about it, in replaying either the joys or the hurts of yesterday because both the glory days and the gory days can get us equally stuck. They can get us equally stuck. Let's not live in the past. Let's not replay the past for our source of joy. The final impulse is seen in the last section of this chapter, verse 17. Paul writes, join together in following my example. Brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God, God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And so the final impulse that I think can rob us of our joy is this focus on the wrong people, putting the wrong people in focus. <clears throat> this is a reminder of Paul of where our focus really needs to be. Because he says there are many people who live as enemies of the cross. And not just a few bad examples out there. Take your pick. There's lots of bad examples you could look at. Paul says don't do that. And he says of these people who are enemies of the cross, he, de- he describes them as having their God as their stomach. In other words, they are concerned with, with temporary happiness with uh, getting instant gratification. That's where their appetite is. But unlike them, our focus should be on eternal joy because we are not citizens of this earth. We are citizens of another place, of heaven. And so we we need to be described by seeking a different kind of joy. Focusing on the wrong people in this life can cause us to question whether the struggle of this Christian journey is really worth it. And we can begin to believe that the instant gratification experienced by those living in the now, maybe that's really where true joy is found. But Paul encourages us instead. He says, stay focused on those who inspire faith. Though there are plenty of discouraging examples out there, there are faithful examples. Look at them. Be inspired by them. Joy isn't found in fixating on bad examples, but in knowing Christ. Now look today. I don't want you to feel discouraged or beat up in any way. No, in fact, I want you to be hopeful that change is possible. And we know this is true. Change is possible in our lives. We can develop new impulses over time. I think the vaccine proved, uh, not the vaccine, the, uh, what do we call it, the pandemic, right? I think that proved it for us because at the beginning of the, the pandemic, we were all required to wear face masks and we had to wear those for a long time, face coverings. We went out to stores, when we were in public, and it was uncomfortable, and it was awkward, and we, we weren't used to it, and it didn't feel right, and all this stuff. But what happened is, it began to feel more normal over time. And then what happened is, now I'll get to the vaccine, the vaccine rolled out, right? And um, the requirements began to lessen. And we no longer needed to wear face coverings to stores and to a place like this to gather. And I don't know if you found this to be true yourself, but for me, I found that every time I left the house, reaching for the mask, right? Every time I left the car, still reaching for the mask. Why? Because I had developed within myself brand new impulses. That's the, 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 the truth of the matter. We can develop in our lives new habits, new impulses, new impulses that please God. And today, I want to encourage you that the habit that you need to develop and that I need to develop is this one. Take out the trash. Take it out. We got to take out the trash. Come on. We've got to do it. Now, maybe what you're discovering today as you're here with us is that there is an area, an impulse that's been growing in your life like garbage. It's 
then allowed to grow over time some unhealthy things, right? And they've begun to um, show up in ways that are very discouraging, defeating and uh, along your Christian journey. They've kept you back from pleasing God in the way that you know he's calling you to. And I want to encourage you today that you don't have to continue in those unhealthy impulses. You can grow brand new healthy impulses by God's grace. Maybe today you've thought about the pressure to prove it and you've, you've thought about the fact that, you know what, your life has been all about this, proving it to others, proving you're a good person, proving that you can be the man, proving that you can uh, you know, be the best on the court, at the gym, whatever it is, your identity, your source of true joy has been improving through achievements. And today you're saying, you know what? Not anymore. I'm taking out the trash. Today, throwing that away, it's going to be different from here on out. I'm going to, I'm going to become uh, a person that recognizes that Christ achieved everything needed to please God. And I no longer have to be the basis. My achievements no longer have to be the basis for my joy. I'm going to choose to place that and find that only in Christ. You're taking out the trash. Maybe today for you it's been this propensity to be passive. And you've recognized that, man, as, as it comes to being a leader in my home, I've not been doing my rightful part. I've not stepped up in all the ways that God would have me to do. And today that ends. I'm taking out the trash. I'm throwing away passivity. And, and I am going to begin to be determined in my home and in my spiritual life in the same ways I would be determined at the gym or at the office. I'm going to become proactive. And I'm going to ask people to help me. I'm going to make a plan and I'm going to stick to it. i got to ask for people's help in my community group, my close friends to surround me. Will you help me be more proactive? I think that would honor God today. And then for you, maybe it's the pull of the past and you recognize that for you, you've been held back for years, maybe even decades because of something that happened to you when you were a teenager. And that has been used as a valid excuse in your mind for just you know why you can't move forward in your Christian life. And again, we don't want to be unsympathetic at all. We realize that pain is real. We want to encourage you to get the help you need so that you can take out the trash of your past, throw it away, and no longer be a slave to your past. And uh, we, I think that might involve a conversation. You might have to have a hard conversation or two. You might have to seek out a close friend that you can confide in. You might have to get some biblical counseling along the way. We want to recommend a book to you as well. It's a great book by Lisa Turkhurst called Forgiving What You Can't Forget. I would encourage you to read it. In fact, we want to offer you a free chapter of that for yourself or somebody else. You can go to iwant.info and get that free chapter if it can be an encouragement. The last area is, of course, focusing on the wrong people. And this one, man, it can get in our way. And maybe today you've discovered, man, I've been focused on all the wrong people. I've been letting the, the example of, of, of those that are truly enemies of the cross, they've been where my focus has been and it's been discouraging. Or I've looked at people that have walked away from their faith and I've been discouraged by them. And Paul says, don't look at them. Look at Christ and look at those who inspire true faith and have real joy. So today, you know what I'm gonna do? Getting rid of that. I'm gonna throw it in the garbage. No more. No more. No more in my life. No more. And I want to I want to encourage you to think rightly about this, right? Because the truth is, guys, that you know, simply avoiding these four impulses is not the key to joy. It's not where true joy is found. 
Knowing Christ is where true joy is found. But these impulses, they can get in the way of developing that relationship as God desires. And so that's why they're so dangerous. I'd also, I'd also mention that just like your garbage at home, this is not a one-time thing. You can't just get rid of the garbage today and expect you're going to be good forever. No, you've got to get rid of the garbage every single week. This has got to be a consistent practice in your life. So don't let this be a today thing. Let this become a habit that builds a brighter future for you because you're not hindering your walk with Christ. By his grace, by the power of his spirit, we can do this. Let's ask him for his help today. Lord God, we are so dependent on you. We want to please you, but we often get in our own way. And I pray that as um, we seek to develop brand new habits that would replace these, these old habits, that you'd help us have success. And we know that you've equipped us to do it. You've given us your power through your word and through your spirit. And I pray that we would depend on you today and that we would please you and glorify you in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen.